What decisions do you make in your darkest moments? You know, those moments when everything you have worked for seems to be slipping away. Hi, I'm Nick Warren and welcome to the I Learn podcast from First Quantum. This week, rower and Olympic double gold medalist James Cracknell talks about the decisions he made at the Atlanta Olympic Games in 1996 when he hit his lowest point. James talks about the decisions he made back then and what he did next. Hi First Quantum Leaders, I'm James Cracknell and my podcast is about my proudest sporting memory. And in a past life I was an Olympic rower and lucky enough to win gold medals at the Sydney 2000 Olympics and the Athens 2004 Olympics. One of the most common questions asked to sports people is what's your proudest sporting memory? And for me unsurprisingly it's at Olympic Games but surprisingly it didn't take place on the field of play. It was in 1996 Olympic Games, which were held in Atlanta. Many people had thought they would be in Athens that year, a hundred years on from the first modern Olympics. Instead, they're in America, where I don't think the American public were that enthused to have them. And they were dubbed the corporate games. Atlanta's the home of Coca-Cola. And the Olympic flame looked like it was housed in a packet of McDonald's fries. And there was also a horrendous bombing in the Olympic Park in the middle of the game, so in the middle weekend, which has been recently made into a, a Hollywood movie. From a sporting perspective for Britain, it was the worst performance at the Olympic Games for, for over 50 years. We won only one gold medal, and that was in rowing, as opposed to 30 gold medals, which we won in Rio in 2016. So it was a horrendous Olympics for the British team. And for me personally, it was terrible because on the day of the opening ceremony, I wasn't feeling particularly well and went to see the team doctor, who said I contracted tonsillitis, and is withdrawing me from the Games. I was at that time sharing a flat with Steve Redgrave and Matthew Pinson, who actually were our only Olympic gold medalists. And by the time I'd come back from the doctors, they'd moved out of the flat, moved out of the Olympic Village and into a hotel, because the risk of them catching what I had would have devastated their Olympics and I was put in a quarantine room of which there were no windows there was no TV it was 200 meters from the Olympic swimming pool so the Olympic swimming takes place in the first week of the games so while I was locked up for a week so I didn't make anyone else ill I could hear the cheers within the Olympic swimming pool which was generally followed by the national anthem of America or Australia which was a different way to spend the first week of the Olympics but in terms of the, the proudest sporting moment of my career, it was the, the decision that I made in that room. For the 1992 Olympics, the ones before, I'd been selected and then broke my shoulder. So I'd missed those Olympics. Trained for four years. There's very limited funding in sport then. And four years later, I was again not able to race. And there's one thing if you can control your destiny. There's another thing if it's, it's taken away from you and you're left in a situation where you, you can't do anything. And it was in that room where I, I made the decision that I would carry on for the next Olympics that were going to be held in, in 2000. And I think it's easy or easier to make a hard decision when things are going well. It's much more difficult to make a, a hard decision when everything's against you. And at that point in time, I was in debt. I'd missed the previous Olympics. I'd missed those Olympics. And in four years' time, I was going to be in more debt and the same thing could happen. And I had to convince myself 
that I had the talent without having been able to prove it on the international stage. The people that I loved and respected, my parents had been out in the Olympic grandstand and they were expecting to see me in the boat and I wasn't there and I hadn't been able to get a message to them because there were no mobile phones then. So they'd wait for their son to row around the corner, he didn't appear. Second Olympics they bought tickets for, second Olympics I hadn't raced at. And then for me to convince them that it was worthwhile me carrying on was hard. People I loved and respected, friends, people I trained with, parents, they were saying, look, it's actually time you you got a proper job. And in four years' time, you're going to be in your mid to late 20s, you'll be in debt, you won't be able to afford a house. In my head, I knew I had the talent, or I believed I had the talent, and I set out with the aim of seeing how good I was. And that meant getting to the start of the Olympic Games and actually putting myself in that position. And for me, lying in that room and making that decision when everything stands against you remains one of my proudest memories. But then not, not just thinking it, but then activating it. And the first way of activating it was to tell people. Because there's one thing having it in your head, there's another thing actually telling people and verbalising it so other people know what your aims are. Because it then suddenly becomes a lot more real. And then there's the practical steps. Okay, how was I going to go about it? And for me... It wasn't just making the start line. It was making the start line and then making it first to the finish line and how to put those steps together. And the best thing about rowing is that, yes, it's a team sport and it's the ultimate team sport because your dreams are in someone else's hands and their dreams are in yours. But it's also up to you as an individual to prove yourself worthy of getting in that team. And so the building blocks are done individually. And that's where I knew, coming back from the... Atlanta Olympics, I had to put myself in a position where it was impossible to leave me out of that boat going into the Sydney Olympics. And that meant being the fastest in the boat on your own, being in the top two or three on the row machine, the ones down the gym that no one goes on, lifting weights, and then getting into the, we call them pairs, it's a two-man boat, and winning those pairs trials to then mean that I was actually ranked in the top of everything. I couldn't be left out of the top boat. And after the Olympics, everyone gets five weeks, four or five weeks off. I started training earlier. I knew I had to hit the ground running. I knew that I didn't have money in the bank from a successful Olympics. I'd lain down for the first week while everyone was racing. I'd missed the previous Olympics with a broken shoulder. I wasn't a lucky athlete. I wasn't deemed exceptionally talented. But I think the experience of having been so close and been selected twice and not having raced gave me that extra bit of desire is a mixture of desperation as well as, as motivation. I think that's what gave me that ability to focus for those four years. And I won the trials in a single. I came second on the Ergo trials. I won the pairs trials. And so it was impossible for me to get left out. And when Jürgen Grobler, who was our East German coach, named the, the four, it was the Acoxus four was what I won the Olympics in. And that boat got selected in 1997 and Steve Regrev and Matthew Pinson were in it, Tim Foster and me. And when he told me, that was a culmination of the moment where I made the decision in that quarantine room and then followed it through. That was the, the proudest moment to have got myself from the lows of not being able to race to the highs of not being selected in the boat, but having the trust of Steve Regrev and Matthew Pinson putting their Olympic reputations in my hands 
as well as our coach, Jürgen. Everybody who coached had won a medal at the Olympics from 1972 right through till that point and, and has gone on to continue that record to 2016. So it was them putting their Olympic trust in me that I was more proud of than actually winning the Olympics three years later because it's the trust of your teammates and the belief of your teammates and that's a combination of me backing myself when every weight on the scales was saying it's better to stop. The same thing could happen. You know, you've not achieved what you should have. You actually better to walk away now and do something else. And stubbornness is not often seen as a positive character trait, but in this situation, I believed it was. I could turn something around from a very low point and through resilience, being able to find something within you when the chips are down to build on, stood me in good stead, not only for that period of time to make the boat, but then all the years subsequently, and actually thinking, right, this is what we need to do. And I think the, the guys that I trained with and raced with, they knew that there was a, a desperation and determination that they could rely on when it was needed, and it's never more needed than in the middle of an Olympic final. And for them to, to have that faith in me was something that I'll always treasure. And it comes not from, from luck, but actually comes from me backing myself. And if there's anything I do in the future, or if there's any advice I could give to anyone, it's actually back yourself, because there's more within each of us than we truly realise. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Everybody involved gave their time for free. For future episodes, you can subscribe to iLearn on Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks for listening and see you next time.